to look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. In case you don't know, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So you can just turn to that uninspired blank page and turn left. And you'll be right there. Malachi 3, verses 7 through 12. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with the curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of the host. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that you will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. This is a strong, sobering passage of Scripture. But if we will be submissive to your word, if we will yield to your commands, we may experience blessings like we have never experienced before. So, Father, I pray that your word will run rapidly. May it not be hindered. May it bear immense fruit among your people for the glory of your name and for our everlasting joy. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 1967, college freshmen were asked, which is more important for you, a meaningful philosophy in life or to make a lot of money? 1967, the vast majority polled said that a meaningful philosophy of life was more important. Roll the clock ahead about 20 years. Similar poll was taken in 1986 among college freshmen. They were asked the same question, only this time, 80% said it is more important for me to make money. Think about it. In a mere 20-year span, A complete paradigm shift has taken place from meaning in life to acquiring more money. It seems that for most people, money is the meaning of life. But let us not think that we are immune to this. Let us not think that we are unfazed by the materialistic society in which we live. We would be kidding ourselves if we said the problem is out there, but it hasn't come Into the church. If we're honest with ourselves, what we see in our culture, we often see in ourselves. A while back, I was listening to a message by John Piper, and he said, When I'm real honest with myself, 
The things that I see in my culture, the things that I despise about my culture are the very same things that I see in myself. And I thought about that and I thought, he is so right. And specifically, he was referring to the fact that we are so easily offended. We have such thin skin. We get, we're easily angered if someone points out something that we do that's wrong. But I want to take that same principle and say we see materialism out there. And if we're honest, don't we see materialism in our own lives? Aren't we concerned about money and our possessions? It's not just a problem that's out there. It's a problem that we have as well. And here's the danger. We might not even be aware of it. Because our society has become increasingly obsessed with money and material things, we're like the proverbial frog in the kettle. Most of you know that if you take a frog and you put him in a pot of water and you slowly turn up the burner, you can boil that frog to death and he will not jump out because he will not notice the change. And could it be that that's happened to us? We know that materialism and this desire for money has been increasing in our culture. And because we're a part of the culture, maybe we're a frog in the culture and we've been affected as well, but we're just not aware of it because it's just a given in our day. We, we need to be aware of this. I, I would tell you, handle money like you would a stick of dynamite. If somebody handed you a stick of dynamite, how would you hold it? Very carefully. Would you not, kids? Very carefully. That's how you should handle your money because it has destructive power. This is what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 9-10. through 10. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Want to have a life of grief and agony? Have a desire for money. And have that desire increase and increase and increase. But here's the subtlety. We may, may not realize the power that money has. In Matthew 13:22, in the parable of the soils, Jesus warned His disciples about the deceitfulness of riches because it can choke the word making it unfruitful. That's powerful. Think about that. The deceitfulness of riches can choke the Word of God, strangle it to death so that it doesn't bear fruit. That's frightening. Because what comes from the Word of God? Just about everything, friends. Salvation comes from the Word of God. Sanctification comes from the Word of God. Strength in the Christian life comes from the Word of God. Freedom comes from the Word of God. Joy comes from the Word of God. And Jesus is saying the deceitfulness of riches can strangle all of that in your life. The deceitfulness of riches. In Luke 16, that we'll talk about later, Jesus refers to money as unrighteous mammon. That's interesting. Unrighteous Mammon. Warren Wiersbe makes an interesting observation. He says, 
Jesus seems to be saying that wealth is defiling and deceitful of itself and that only God can sanctify it for noble purposes. Even if that is a little bit overstated, I still think there's a very powerful point there. Money can be deceitful and unrighteous of itself. Therefore, we need the Holy Spirit to sanctify money so that we can use it appropriately. And I want to ask you this morning, has your money been sanctified by the Word of God and the Spirit of God? And I could ask you many questions to test you about this. Are you generous with your money and your possessions? Do you give to the poor? Do you tithe? And that's the question I want to focus on this morning. Do you give a tenth of your income to God? And I'm focusing on that one because that is the focus of our passage this morning. As I said, we're looking at Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi is the last inspired word from God until John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Israelites have returned from Babylonian captivity. They've been living in the land for about 100 years now. They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the wall. Um, There was a time of mild revival, I guess you could say, under Ezra and some other prophets. But 100 years have passed, and the Israelites have backslidden. They have turned away from God. But God, in His mercy, in His grace, in His kindness, in His love, in His patience, and His persistence comes to the people once again. And He pleads with them. And this is basically His plea in one phrase. Return to Me, and I will return to you. Think about that. God could have said, I've had it with you guys. Year after year, decade after decade. Century after century, God could have said, that's it. But He doesn't give up. He comes once again and He calls the people again. Return to Me and I will return to you. How do the people respond? Verse 7. But you say, how shall we return? Now, I don't think the people literally said that. I think this is a literary device. God is saying through the prophet Malachi, return to me. And he's anticipating the response of the people. This is though God is saying, or Malachi is saying, I know what they're going to say. How shall we return? And basically, in this passage, God tells the Israelites how they can return. And he gives them three answers to that question, how they can return. Number one, recognize that there is a need to return recognize that there is a need to return. I begin there. God begins there because I think when God said, return to me, the people said, what? Who? Us? We need to return? What What? What have we done? You, you can't be talking about us. We're not like the pagan nations out there. We're your chosen people. We, we walk with you. We come to the temple. We bring our offerings to you. We're the religious people. You can't be referring to us, can you? And God says, yes, I'm referring to you. And God says, you need to recognize that you need to return. So God shows them where they're off track. 
in verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. God says, recognize your need to return. And he points out something very specific and precise because they could see it. It's black and white. It's not subjective. It's objective. He says, you're not bringing the tithe to me. You are robbing me. You see how God phrased it? You're robbing me. You're stealing from me. You're a bunch of thieves. This is serious. Imagine a man coming into my office and and he says, Pastor Wayne, have have you heard about all the the bank robberies that have been taking place in the Chicagoland area? And and I say, you know, actually, I, I have heard of those. I've seen that on the news. And imagine this gentleman saying, you need to know that two years ago, I robbed six banks in a year. I was the guy who did it. But I want you to know, a little over a year ago, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And last year, I only robbed three banks. <laughs> Do you think I would say, oh, I'm so relieved. He's still robbing, friends. And here's the point. Sometimes people say, well, I'm trying to work myself up to tithing. I'm on the way. What they're really saying is, but I'm still robbing God. I'm just not robbing Him as much as I had in the past. If you're not bringing in the whole tithe, God says, you're robbing me. This is serious. And then notice what he goes on and he says in verse 9. You are cursed with a curse. That, that's serious. He says it twice so they don't miss. You are cursed with the curse. Above all things, what we long for and desire is the blessing of God. We want God to pronounce His benediction upon us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up, lift up His countenance upon you and give you now and forever His peace. That's what we want God to pronounce upon us. But He tells these Israelites, you're robbing me. My blessing is not upon you. You are cursed with a curse. So God is saying, can you see that you have a need to return to me because you're robbing me and you are under my curse? And could it be that maybe the people were starting to wake up? Maybe they were saying, you know what? For a long time, it, it, it's felt as though God has been so distant from me. My relationship with Him has felt so cold. And, and I've wondered where God has gone. Maybe some were saying, but I now see that God didn't go anywhere. But I turned away from Him. And now I understand that, that the coldness in my Christian life the lack of vitality, the lack of passion is, is because I'm under the curse of God. Oh, I, I've turned away from God. I need to repent. And that's really what God is calling the people to do here. The Hebrew word here, return, is also translated repent. But of course, I think the translators say return because it doesn't want to be repent and I will repent. Repent. 
But what it is is a 180 turnaround. That's what repentance is. So God is telling His people, turn towards Me, repent, and I, in turn, will turn towards you. And we have a beautiful picture. God says, if you'll turn towards Me, I will turn towards you. But you have to recognize that you have a tremendous need to repent because you've turned away from Me. As is clear, by not tithing and you're under a curse. And then God goes on and He says, and you can also turn to Me by responding to the solution that I've made available. And the solution is very simple. It's very clear. It's very specific. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That's it. That's what God says in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And I like how he emphasizes that. That's really redundant. But it's as though God is saying, don't bring in 2.5%. Don't bring in 5%. Don't bring in 7.5%. Bring in 10%. And in case you don't know, the word tithe literally means one-tenth. That's what it means. God is saying, give me a tenth of your income. And some people will say, well, is that on the net or is that on the gross? So generously, reap generously. So sparingly, reap sparingly. But I'm going to say, at the very least, it's on the net. And the illustration I once heard was, God doesn't expect the farmer to tithe on the crops that the locusts have eaten. The locusts that we have in our culture, i.e. the government... has taken much of our money, and, and the truth is, it's, it's not ours. And, and I don't want to place upon you a burden that's greater than, than what God places upon you. But at the very least, we should be giving God 10% of the nets. That's very important. That's what God is calling for. Now, I know, as soon as I talk about this, some people are going to say, But that's in the Old Testament. And my response always is, so? (laughs) So, you're you're telling me that under the Old Covenant, what God was concerned that 10% be brought to the storehouse so that the Levites and the ministers and all those in the body could be taken care of. But now under the New Covenant, God isn't concerned about His people being taken care of. But if you want a biblical answer, I'll give you a biblical answer. Yes, tithing is part of the law, but also tithing comes way before the law. And you say, what do you mean by way before the law? Like 500 years plus before the law ever came. In Hebrews 7, and you can turn there if you like, the author makes reference to Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ. Hebrews 7 refers to an Old Testament incident. Back in Genesis, some of you may recall that Abraham's nephew Lot was taken captive when a group of wars were fighting with one another. And Abraham got his army together, pursued the kings, and rescued Lot. And when he returned from battle, 
he encountered this mysterious figure. We don't know a lot about him, but his name is Melchizedek, and he was a king, and he was a priest at the same time. Something very unusual. And even more unusual is that Abraham took a tenth of everything that he had and he gave it to Melchizedek, a type of Christ. And Melchizedek blessed our father Abraham. That's the context. And this is what we read in Malachi 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And then notice this. See how great... This man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham, by giving a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, basically said to everybody who was watching, you see this Melchizedek? He is a great man. We don't just give to Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ, we give to Jesus Christ Himself. And here's the reality, friends. When the offering basket came by a little earlier, some of you, by honoring God with the tithe, said very loudly and very clearly, God, You are great! And I'm demonstrating how great You are by bringing in the full tithe. Some of you, the truth is, by what you put in the offering basket, said, Lord, I think you're great. And some of you, again, maybe by what you put in or didn't put in, said, Lord, I'm not even sure if you really exist. We're communicating a lot to God by how we honor Him with our wealth. We are saying something. As the old saying goes, put your money where your mouth is. Anybody can stand and sing how great the Lord is. But does our life line up with what we say? Including our giving. And let me also remind you that Jesus upheld the tithe. He did not rescind the tithe. He could have. He could have. He, he rescinded the old the Old Testament food laws. Jesus reversed that and He declared all food clean. He said those things were, were off base in the Old Testament. You were not to touch them or eat them, enjoy them, but you now can enjoy them. He turned that over. He did not do that with the tithe. He upheld the tithe. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe, mint and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus basically said, it's good that you're a tither. 
Do these other things as well, but continue to tithe. Jesus upholds the tithe. But also, do we really need that? I mean, seriously, do do we really need any of that in the Bible? Couldn't we just use a little bit of Christian common sense? If under the Old Covenant, the Israelites brought their tithes and contributions to the Lord, and they gave much more than 10%. If they gave to God, and they joyfully gave to God under the Old Covenant, how about us in the New Covenant who enjoy all that the prophets look forward to? You and I who enjoy the coming of Jesus Christ. You and I who enjoy Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We now not, not only have the law written on stone tablets like in the Old Testament, we have God's law written on our very hearts. We, we enjoy it all. We are the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament looked forward to. And are you going to say, since we are so richly blessed in a way that those under the Old Covenant can only look forward to, are we now going to give less? Has has God poured out His blessings upon us so that under the Old Covenant we can be stingy? I, I don't think so. Doesn't just a little bit of common sense show that we should honor God more and not less. And also, let me make it clear that the full tithe is to be brought into the storehouse. Today, we would say the church. The tithe begins with the church. God is concerned about His house. If you turn back just two books, this is what we read in Haggai chapter 1, 4 and following. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Again, God is reminding the people that they are cursed, not blessed. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. God is concerned about his house. He is concerned about the church. And again, are are we going to say, well, that was the old covenant. He's, He's not concerned about his house today. He's not concerned about the church today. We need buildings to do ministry. We need even simple things like decks so we can go outside and and fellowship. And maybe God would say, do you have a deck on your house? Build a deck on my house. We have a responsibility to God's house. But we're not just talking about the house physically. We're talking about ministry. The average Christian 
gives 2.5% of his income to the church. That's not a tithe. It's not even close to a tithe. 2.5%. The church is under the curse of God. We wonder why the church is weak and impotent, not having an impact. We're not bringing in the tithe. Imagine. Let's just dream for a moment. Imagine if God's people were faithful. And instead of bringing 2.5% to the Lord, which I think is the equivalent of what they were doing in Malachi earlier when they were bringing lame lambs and sick lambs to the Lord. Imagine if God's people brought in the whole tithe, 10%. That means, if we just take this as an average across the board, this means that the budget of every single church could be multiplied times four. Imagine that. Let's just take our church, for example, and I hope it's a lot higher than 2.5%. And I know it is. But let's just imagine that the budget of our church could be multiplied times four. What ministry could we do? We could send the steels out tomorrow to the mission field. We'll underwrite the whole cost. You're willing to go. We're willing to pay the money. And we would have another 300000 or so left over after that. We could have congregational meetings where we could just Dream and brainstorm about the ministries that we could do. We have all this money. Pastor, elders, what can we do with all this money so that we can have an impact for Jesus Christ? Why is the church weak? It's unfunded. It's underfunded. Let's not be more spiritual than God. Yes, we need to pray more. Absolutely, yes and amen. But we also need to give more. We need to stop robbing God. Isn't it something? If God's people would really give the church in America, we would own this nation. The next presidential election would not be a problem. I am serious. But it begins with the church. Judgment begins with the house of God. If you want to see a change in the culture again, it's got to begin with God's people. We have to experience the blessing of God. So God says very clearly, respond to my solution. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And then a final point. God says you can return to me by relying on the promises that I'm giving you in my challenge. Rely on the promises that I'm giving you in my challenge. And this is something. In the middle of verse 10. After God says, Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. God says, Test me. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. And pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That is awesome, friends. Just awesome. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in Matthew 9, the devil brought Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, Jump down, for it is written in the Word of God. 
God will see to it that angels take care of you and you won't strike your foot. And Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And periodically, God says to his people in the Old Testament, don't test me. And he rebukes them like he did in the wilderness for putting them to the test. But there is one exception to that rule, and it's right here. God says, test me. Every Sunday morning, when the offering basket is passed, God is saying, test me. Test me. Bring the full tithe in and see if I will not bless you in ways that you never dreamed of. Look at this promise here. See if I will not open the windows of heaven. Some translations, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and rain upon you so much blessing, you won't have enough room for it. Lord, stop. We don't have any more room for your blessing. This is way too much. I always picture the flood. When, when God opened the floodgates of heaven, drowned the world, I think that's what God is saying here. Put me to the test. I will drown you in my blessings. That's what God is saying here. And don't misunderstand, this is not a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying if you give 10% that you're going to be a millionaire. You may not. I'm not saying that if you give God 10%, your, building, your business will not fail. It may. I am saying, though, God will bless you. Just allow God to bless you as He pleases. Maybe God wants to bless you in better ways. John Wilson has said on more than one occasion... As we're sitting in an elders meeting, he says, I think one of the reasons I'm sitting here is because I tithe. And I think this is part of the blessing. God allows me the privilege of serving in his church as a leader. I, I was thinking about my mother. And, and by the grace of God, tithing's never really been an issue, but it's because my mother has ingrained it in me. But I can remember when she first became a Christian, she gave the tithe. I don't know where she learned it. And she would say, it doesn't make sense on paper. And you need to understand, she just retired from being a bookkeeper. She knows numbers. She said, it doesn't make sense on paper. But God takes care of my bills. And I believe that's one of the things that God used to bring me to himself. I saw my mother exercising faith in him, trusting him to provide through a rough divorce. And I heard that, and that resonated. And could it be that while my mother's not a millionaire, could it be that God said, Bonnie, because you've honored me with the tithe, I'm going to honor you. You're praying for your depraved son who's throwing away his life to drugs and immorality. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to lift him up out of the pit of hell, and I'm going to save him just as you're praying. But not only that, I'm going to do immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine. I'm not only going to save him, I'm going to call him to the ministry. Because you honor me, I'm going to bless you. I don't know. I'm just imagining. But we have no idea how God may want to bless us. But we do know this for sure. God will bless us. God will bless us. He promises to. He told the Israelites, I will rebuke the devourer, perhaps a reference to locusts who would devour the crops, which would be a big deal if you're a farmer. 
And many of them were at this time. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. God's saying, I'll take care of you. You'll have the food that you need so that you can provide for your family. I know that whenever we talk about tithing, people feel guilty. Let me just state very clearly, I do not want you to feel guilt. I don't think God wants you to feel guilt. I think if you're not tithing, God wants you to feel stupid. Because given this promise right here, there is no greater investment that you will find anywhere. So if you don't take 10% of your money and invest it in the storehouse of God, you're a fool. An absolute fool. How, How could you say thanks but no thanks? You will never get an offer in your whole life. There is no better investment of your money than the one God gives you right here. But I know what part of the problem is. It's a faith issue. Because if we really did believe God, we'd say, Oh, I can't wait. We'd get out the wall. We'd get out the checkbook. All right, we'd write that check and we would be cheerful givers. Why aren't we cheerful givers? We don't believe God. Why aren't we bringing in the full tithe? We don't believe God. And here's what's scary, friends. It could possibly mean that not only do we have a lack of faith, it could mean we have no faith. It could be that we do not have saving faith. Therefore, we do not have a new heart. We do not have God's law written on our hearts so that it is a joy to say, God, you're great, and I'm going to demonstrate it with this money. That's what scares me when I see how some Christians are robbing God. really frightens me. You may be thinking, this is about money. This is about the church. It's much bigger than that. Way bigger than that. This is about your relationship with Almighty God. God says, return to me and I will return to you. Recognize that you're cursed You're not under the blessing of God. You're under the curse. Recognize that you're something very specific you have to do. You have to bring in the tithe. And you have to trust the promises of God. And God says, when that happens, I will return to you. Which means instead of having God's back towards you, God will turn. You will experience His blessing, His countenance upon you. Vitality may come back to your spiritual life. And for some of you, I'm going to promise, it it could happen that fast. I have heard people say that when they brought in the tithe within a matter of weeks, their life changed and they saw that God was faithful. And I, I bet some of you could testify to that. I bet some of you could say, I remember when we started tithing, and it was just a matter of months and we saw change. Because God is faithful. It will happen. This is what God is calling us to do. And then verse 12 says, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. And of course, we now, the church, is the royal priesthood, the holy nation, as Peter says. And if the church will give, God will return. 
God will bless us in such a way that the nations will know. The nations will know the grace of God. We look at Mexico and everything that's taking place down there. Maybe we're partly to blame the church in America. Maybe God is saying, if you folks would live as I'm calling you to live, even down in Mexico, they would see what a great God I am. They would see it up in Canada. They would see it in the Middle East, Asia. The world would see it. The nations will call you blessed. But it begins with the church. It begins with us. And again, God is so gracious that He calls us again and again back to Himself. He doesn't give up. He says, return to Me and I will return to you. Some of us need to take Him up on that offer. Let's close in prayer. Father, You are gracious Merciful and forgiving God, and we thank you for that because we're all sinners. Some of us are sinning with our money, some of us are sinning in other ways, but we all sin. And we all know that from time to time we need to repent, we need to ask forgiveness, and we need to return to you. Father, thank you for these great promises. Without these promises, we would despair. We would think we were lost. We were abandoned by you forever. Thank you that you have not done that. Thank you for this invitation. And Father, I pray that you will stir our hearts. I pray that you will move us towards obedience. And Father, we're looking to you to open the floodgates of heaven. Bless us in ways that we've never seen before. Show yourself faithful. May we take you up on this challenge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.